Uh, we are jumping back into our series called Under the Sun, where we're looking at the book uh, of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon, the author uh, of the book, has said two things over and over again. Number one is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Meaningless, 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 empty, 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 breath, breath, breath. Right? He's repeating that, and he's going to repeat that 35 times in the book. And he's going to attach that to the other phrase after which the series is named Under the sun. He says that 29 times in the book. And what he means by that is disconnected from heaven. So the idea is that all of life is meaningless when it is disconnected from heaven. That's the major idea of the book. But the good news is that God offers us a full life um, in an empty world. That's what we're going to learn as we kind of journey our way um, through the book. So today um, we're going to look at probably what is the most often uh, quoted passage, or certainly the most familiar passage, I would guess, um, in Ecclesiastes um, in chapter 3. So if you have a copy of the scriptures and you want to turn over there, um, we will start reading in verse 1. It says this, To everything there is a season. And if you're expecting the words turn, turn, turn to come next, you are of a certain, you're of a certain age, right? Um, the Bible doesn't have it wrong. The birds added a little artistic license there. I was thinking, though, if you saw the message or the title to the message today is, is called uh, Hammer Time, if you saw that. So maybe instead of the birds, you would be expecting, you know, this clip, maybe. Can't touch this. And if you know this clip, right, you are also uh, of a certain age. And if you're, I don't know, if you're 30 years old or below and you're like, the birds, yeah, I didn't see hammer. I don't, I don't know either. I'm sorry <laughs> that you didn't have any good music in your childhood. Right? Right, so we'll pick it back up. A time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time uh, of peace. Um, so the most often quoted word in the most often quoted passage of Ecclesiastes is the word time. But when Solomon talks about time, he's not talking about minutes or hours. Rather, the word that he uses to frame the whole of those verses, that poetic section of the book, is seasons. To everything, there is a season. And he's gonna, he references all of these different seasons, these different movements that can have, uh, some are long seasons, some are short seasons. They're going to differ depending on your life from, from somebody else's Life, But what we are um, learning along the way, what Solomon, I think, is going to teach us today, and if you're a believer, we're just going to learn this and learn this and learn this, especially where we live, right, here in Columbus, South Delaware County-ish, that while you and I love a fast pace, while we are in a hurry, God is not. While we are in a hurry, God is not. Consistently, um, when you talk to people, one of the frustrating things about being a believer is people talk about the plan. They want to know God's plan. They want to know what God's 
will is. And when we say that, what we mean, uh, generally speaking, is we're referring to God's geographical plan or God's relational plan. But there's a plan. There's a will that trumps those things in scripture. And I would just say that God has made known to us what his will is, what his ultimate plan is, right? Romans 8:29. It is God's plan that you and I, if you're a believer, it is God's plan that you and I would be conformed to the image of his son. That is God's plan for you to throughout the course of your life, make you look more and more and more like Jesus. Now, what about you? I thought about that this week and I was thinking, how long is that going to take, right? Think about your own life. How long do you think it's going to take for somebody to come? Maybe they've known you for a long time. Maybe they're just meeting you and for them to go, you know what? That Dean, that Amy, that Mark, I think that's exactly what Jesus would look like if Jesus were walking around in the world. How long do you think that'll take, right? The bad news of the gospel, we talk about the bad news of the gospel is that we're born into this world sinful, separated from God, children of Adam, right? Turned to our own way, selfish, bent on our own, what Wesley talked about um, earlier, right? Is our own self-worship at times. How long do you think it's gonna take God to turn you into somebody that people would think, oh, that resembles what I think people in heaven would look like, a lifetime? That's the point right there. That God will use any means at his disposal throughout the course of your life, high, high points, low points, mountaintops, valleys, all different kinds of seasons, right? Um, weeping, laughter, mourning, dancing, uh, building up, tearing down. He's gonna use all of those seasons to conform you to the image of Jesus and he will take his time doing it. As a matter of fact, if he moved any faster, the process would probably kill us. So he's gonna take his time, his ultimate plan, his ultimate will is to turn you and me into something that's beautiful. Um, I had the uh, blessing, privilege my last year of college after I graduated to tour Northern California and do some ministry there. And in Northern California, there are beautiful uh, redwood forests. I got to go to Muir Woods and Sequoia uh, forests there. I'll show you a picture of a, of a Sequoia. I'm not exactly sure what that guy's doing, but it shows you the breadth and the size, right, of one of these massive massive trees. I'll show you kind of an upward look at what they looked like. You know, some of these trees, it takes, it takes God 600 years to make a sequoia. Yeah, maybe you, I don't know if you garden or not. I try to dabble and garden a little bit. It takes God about six months to make a squash, right? A sequoia or a squash? Which one do you want to be? takes God time. You walk outside, maybe you went out and saw fireworks. Um, I don't know, last night you walk outside at night, you look up um, at the stars, you look up at the heavens, and every now and then you'll catch a shooting star. Lasts about a second, second half. You're like, oh wow, and it's gone. You wanna be a shooting star? Or you wanna be the North Star? One is there and gone, just like that. 
and one is something that lasts. And God wants to work in your life and my life to conform us to the image of Jesus because he's doing something beautiful that is lasting for eternal eternal purposes. Now, where that's going to create friction in your life and friction in my life is when it rubs up against our need, our desire for power. Power is one of the themes um, of Ecclesiastes that Solomon is going to say that you and I, that we just have to, we just got to deal with. And he talks about it in chapter six. So if you want to turn over to chapter six, we'll look at that, start reading in verses one and two. He says this, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. So now we're talking about personal power. We're talking about, I want to borrow this definition from a theologian named Dallas Willard. It's the range of your effective will. It's that place and space in your life where you have the opportunity to make choices, to make determinations. Think about it like your own little, uh, your own little kingdom, right? It's the place in your life or places in your life where you um, are in charge. We have euphemisms in our culture about power and places in our lives, right? Um, we say a man's home is his castle. All the ladies are like, yeah, right, whatever, right? But I remember this. Whenever I was a young dad, I had three, three young children, and I thought the way that this was going to work is that as the, as the father, right, I'm going to mandate certain things are going to happen in my home. Say to my kids, when I get home today, I want your beds made and your chores done and your homework done, right? So I get to the end of my day and walk in the walk in the house and there's my three little kids there and they're like, Father, thank you for working so hard to provide for all of the needs of our family. Chores done, homework done. One of them has the remote, one of them's got my slippers, one of them's got a glass of iced tea for me. What does all that mean? It means I walked in the wrong house, right? <laughs> some days my kids ran that kingdom, right? I did not, I was not the king of that space. So what's going to happen then as we think, oh man, I'm in charge. Oh, I have power. Oh, I have authority. In our lives, there are going to be moments Solomon's going to say, you think that you're, that you're powerful. And he illustrates that from their culture in verse three. He says, if a man uh, fathers a hundred children, lives many years so that, the days, uh, of his, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he has no burial, I say, that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity, it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet do no good, do not all go to one place. The danger uh, with power is that you can possess everything and enjoy nothing under the sun. It's this idea that the power that comes with possessions doesn't always equal contentment. What Solomon says in those verses, he says, look, you can, um, you can live 2,000 years. He says, you can live 1,000 years twice over. He says, you can father 100 children. Because when you thought about power in their culture, you thought about uh, people who lived a long time, they had longevity, or you thought about people who had big 
families, right? That had lots and lots of so Solomon says you can have all the things that you, that you want, that you can imagine to be power. And I think he's pointing out this reality, this difficulty that we have with self-worship. I said this to our Delaware campus when I was up there uh, teaching last week, that we tend, we tend to want to use God to enhance our worship of possessions instead of using our possessions to enhance our worship of God. We're just bent that way. We're turned that way towards, towards us. And Solomon uses a terrible image, terrible imagery here. He says, it would be better to be a stillborn child. And I think this is a very specific reference in Solomon's life. Solomon's oldest sibling um, was the result of a murderous, adulterous relationship between his mother and his father before they were married. That child lived seven days. And David, his father, said of that child, this begins to form um, somewhat our theology um, around the idea of children and babies and heaven and eternity and all those kind of things. David said, well, the child cannot come to me. I can go to the child. Meaning David's saying, whenever I die, I will go to the child who is now at peace and at rest in heaven. So the reason that Solomon uses that imagery is what he's saying is, he's saying, listen, it's better to have never lived at all than it is to live a life of self-worship that's bent on the power that only possessions can provide. And even if you do well, even if you do well handling uh, possessions and power and things up in verse two, he's already said to us, listen, you're gonna end, you're gonna, you're gonna die at the end of your life and you're gonna hand all of your possessions off to people who are going to do things that you wouldn't even probably approve of. So what's, what's the win? Why is it, why do we struggle so much with power? Here's what he says in verse seven. Um, he says, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than a wandering appetite. An increase in power tends to create an increase in appetite. One of the reasons I think that Solomon is, says that we struggle so much is that the more we have, it's not the more we have, the more we become satisfied. It's that the more we have, the more we want. So an increase in the power that comes with possessions that doesn't always equal contentment only yields a desire for more power and more appetite for more stuff and more things. I think this is why Paul says in the New Testament that I have learned to be content Contentment is not just something that you're just, you're just given, right? You learn contentment through this power struggle in your soul. You learn how to be content. And he asks a great question. He says, listen, what advantage does a poor man have over a wealthy man? It's a great question that he asks in their culture, but it's not just in their culture. It's in our culture. It's not just in our culture. It's in, it's in our church. This question is asked all the time. We are blessed to send um, folks from our church internationally um, around the world. 
Last year, upwards of 80 people, I think we sent um, internationally. And whenever we experience, especially if you're going on a mission trip for the first time, whenever you experience third world realities, you ask this question, the same exact question. Uh, my youngest uh, child, uh, she went on a mission trip to Uganda with my wife this year out of the country for the first time, experienced um, those kinds of third world realities for the first time. And she asked the same question. How is it when we go visit people around the world who don't have iPads and don't have cell phones, who don't have access to the technology that we have, that don't have access to the speed, the rapid nature, everyone doesn't own their own vehicle, everyone, they have to be patient, they have to wait, and yet they're happier than we are. And you go and you meet people and they're content and they're full of joy, and it makes you step back and scratch your head and go, wait, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. And yet, Solomon says it does make sense. Because an increase in power only creates an increase in appetite because power doesn't satisfy your soul under the sun, disconnected from heaven and from eternity. So the more you get of what you want, the more you want of what you get. That's how it works. And what power can do is it can create this false sense of control and security to the degree that you and I think, we think that we are in charge of our lives. That we think we're going to be the ones to make certain things happen, to move the pieces on the chessboard just right, to bring to bear certain realities and certain outcomes and certain products. And that works until it doesn't work. Uh, there were these two guys um, in the early 2000s. They were college buddies, John and Amir. And um, they kind of got in this prank war. And it seemed to culminate whenever Amir somehow pranked John on the Jumbotron um, in Yankee Stadium in the middle of a Yankee game where John gets slapped by a young lady in front of all of Yankee Stadium. And you feel like, man, that's as big, right, as this can get. But John would not be outdone. So somehow he convinced his alma mater, the University of Maryland, to allow him or to join him in what seemed to be the ultimate prank. He knew Amir was going to a basketball game at the University of Maryland with a couple of his buddies. So he convinced the AD uh, from the University of Maryland to create a fake competition. Three people were randomly chosen from the audience to take a half court shot blindfolded to win half a million dollars. So the three people are chosen randomly, of which Amir is one. They are whisked away to the locker room so that the conditions and the what's going to happen in the contest would be explained uh, to them. While they're in the locker room, John goes to half court. They give him the microphone. He explains to the crowd, listen, my buddy Amir is going to be up here in a minute. He's going to be double blindfolded. He's going to throw up a shot from half court. He's going to miss wildly. But when that ball passes the rim, we are going to cheer like crazy so that he thinks he just made a half court shot blindfolded to win half a million dollars. And of course, there would be video cameras present to see the whole thing. So I couldn't show you the whole video clip, but I'll show you just the part of the shot. Straight in front of you, half court shot, five steps away. 
I don't have time to show it all to you, but the best part of the video is here in a couple of minutes, whenever he gets up and he composes himself, here comes the big, huge half a million dollar check. Somebody's running it out. It's actually John. He's got a mask on and they line up with the check and get ready to take the, the big photo at the end. And John lifts his mask up and looks over at him and they catch him right at the perfect moment, right? Uh, to take the shot. And he realizes this is the ultimate, the ultimate prank. And the reason that, um, the reason that I showed you that video is because I think that a lot of us think that we are in charge of our lives. And we're running around like, I got power. I'm making choices. I'm, I'm, I'm calling all the shots in my life. And your friends are, yeah. And it's all a big prank. And you don't know till you don't know that you're being pranked by the enemy. I had a lady come up to me after the 930 service. And she said, that thing you said about the video, she said, that was my dad. He was successful at everything he did. He did everything right. And it was all set until he turned 70 years old and his relationship with his family buckled and his health started to fail and his wife got dementia. She said all of a sudden he realized he wasn't in charge of anything. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can live life above the sun. We can live life connected to eternity for the sake of things that matter, realizing that God is in the process of turning us into something beautiful, taking his good, sweet time during seasons, highs, lows, mountaintops, and valleys to chip away anything and everything that doesn't look like Christ for his sake and his glory, which is the primary, the end goal of the universe, but it's also at the same time for our best. So as we remain connected to him and as we lean into him, we can become a sequoia, something that lasts, something that is beautiful and honorable and respectful, useful in the hands of God. And you say, well, Dean, how, how does that work? Here's how it works. You see, we have a savior that left ultimate power. Jesus set aside the power of eternal glory, left heaven and came to earth. The scriptures say that he emptied himself. He intentionally gave up power. Are you willing to do that? He intentionally set aside the wealth of eternity. Are we willing to do that, to live the kinds of generous lives so that God can change us into becoming the kind of person that God wants us to be, the kind of people, quite honestly, that we really want to be instead of faking it, right? Instead of pretending to be this really spiritual person while at the same time you've got something completely different going on in the background of your life. And instead of living this kind of weird, dualistic life that most people can figure out, by the way, but we think, oh, I'm powerful. Oh, I'm in charge. Oh, I'm the one who's calling the shots and I'm getting everything that I want. 
and it works till it doesn't. Now, Jesus left heaven, came to earth, and scriptures say that he took on the form of a man, he was fashioned as a man. He became weak so that the weak, you and me, might be made strong. See, we only find strength when we lean into the connectivity that we have with God above the sun. Which is why Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom, not my kingdom. Not your kingdom or your kingdom or your kingdom or your kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your realities, the way that things function in heaven, God, your kingdom come. Those kingdom ways be poured into my life right now. Your kingdom come. Your will. What's his will? His will is that you and I would be conformed to the image of Jesus. Your kingdom, not my kingdom, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Fashion me to the image of Jesus so that I learn contentment no matter what my circumstances are. Weeping, dancing, building down, tearing up, no matter what the season, God, I embrace your kingdom because we have an amazing God who was willing to give up everything to be put um, tortured on a cross, placed in a tomb, miraculously resurrected on the third day to give us hope that we don't have to fear the grave, but rather that the other side of the grave will be the greatest thing that we have ever experienced. You can become everything you want to become. Sequoia or squash? Shooting star? North star? God puts that choice, that decision in our hands. And so I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we are going to take the opportunity to sing, not out of a sense of self-worship, but prayerfully, out of a sense of repentance, of squaring up with God, and out of a sense of the rhythm of eternity, eternal praise that's going on right now in heaven, we're just joining in it as we sing, oh, praise the name of the Lord, our God. He's God, we are not, but he has graciously poured himself into us in the person of Christ and will change and transform us to become the people we've always wanted to become and to have the life that we've always wanted. Let's pray together. God, we cast, throw, turn our minds towards Calvary, towards the place where you emptied yourself in our behalf, where you gave yourself for us. And God, as we do that, we believe, we trust that you are renewing um, our minds, that you're renewing 
our hearts that give God, you are taking steps to grow us in this new birth that we've experienced in you. And God, the more we praise, the more we sense. And the more we praise, the more we see. And so God, I pray this morning as we lift our voices as much as humanly possible to you, that you would be pleased and that we would be changed. In your name we pray, amen.